1: Dropping by the Bloomberg studio here in New York City as Harm Banholds, Unicredit Bank chief US economist, and he joins us now. Good morning to you, Harm. Good morning. We could paint a very gloomy picture. The IMF cutting its global outlook for growth, the IEA saying that oil prices are in the red zone, and then I look at the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker forecasting um, 4%. Um, are things that bad?
2: Uh, no things are not that bad there are a lot of risk on the horizon and the imf also reminded us that the that the uh the balance of risk has shifted to the downside but i mean even 3.7 percent growth the new forecast is not is not that bad right um and and certainly in the us uh, things look and look look an awful lot better um, but i would like to add mostly thanks to a stimulus which supports yep. an economy that is running at or or, or or beyond full employment so it is a very short-term uh, measure but at this point, it helps the
1: optics. If we just go through the IMF forecast, they're basically trimming their outlook and putting it in line to track growth that we got last year. I mean, the growth last year was pretty decent. If we plateau around these levels,
2: that's not a negative story, is it, Harm? No, not at all. And I think it's too optimistic. Because, I mean, that's what these official bodies, I guess, have to do. They usually do not forecast recessions because that would send a signal. So that's true for central banks. That's true for the IMF and for the World Bank. They, at some point, then just forecast potential um, and, and I think it would be great if we end up with
1: such an outcome. It's like the Federal Reserve. They're not in the business of forecasting yes. um, recessions because they're meant to do something about
2: it before we get there. How <laughs> are you forecasting a recession? Um, I think there's a good chance that we, have a down, that we see a downturn, a mild downturn in 2020. So we, we do forecast, in, and our official forecast is significant growth slowdown in the second half of 19 to 1, 1.5% in the U.S., and uh, probably further slowing in 2020. Some people struggle
1: to believe in that. When you see the GDP trackers around 4%, how do we get from four
2: down towards negative growth? What takes us there? Well, first of all, the 4% or whatever, so we have 3.3% for the third quarter, but anyway, decent growth number. That's for this quarter, right? So I mean, for the third quarter. doesn't tell us anything about the future. I mean, they just look at GDP components. They look at what the short-term indicators are, are indicating, and that is decent growth for the third quarter after even better growth in the in the second quarter.
0: What's it mean for a society to chronically run at two point eight or three percent GDP versus somewhat same society running at one point eight percent GDP? You look at the with the World Economic Outlook page, John, and it's just amazing when you see the numbers laid out for the United States versus a set of selected European countries.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, GDP numbers by themselves do not say a lot about what it means for society. I think we should rather look at GDP per capita numbers, right? So what productivity sure. is doing. So the U.S. has a bit better uh, demographics than most European countries, but that does not explain everything uh, in, the, in the gross differential. But um, but again, in terms of GDP per capita numbers, the outlook or also the history for the U.S. and the history for Eurozone as a whole is not that different and it's certainly not as different as you would think if you just look at headline GDP mm. numbers. But overall, to your point, of course, if you grow faster on a per capita basis, well, that by itself should mean uh, more wealth accumulated by, by that population. But then let me add another caveat. It's about distribution as well, right? So, I mean, it's great if, you, if your country as a whole produces well, is that, I mean, th- x amount of gdp growth but only if a small share benefits okay. from it
0: what's your study of american wages this came up the other day in a conversation is wage growth barbelled with people you know one group of people making five six seven <clears> percent <throat> wage growth and everybody else flat on their backs
2: um well i think there are, there are different distributions so i mean w- yeah. there was also a, a a period where you had the high-income earners benefiting a lot and the low-income earners finally seeing some wage gains, and the middle didn't get in anything. Um, I think it, um, oh, but that is probably also a bit of a function where we are in the cycle. I think mm-hmm. the, the long-term, the long-term developments are very clear. Uh, there are people with better skills, better adapted to globalization, technological progress, and having uh, more wealth to start with benefiting quite a bit more than everybody else.
1: Can we get your view on what oil means and higher oil price means for the US economy at the moment? We had the IEA chief come out and say we should all see the risky situation. The oil markets are entering. The red zone. I've not, not heard of that one, Tom. The red zone.
0: A national football. come on. Fatih Barol is is watching American football. You come down the field and you get inside the 20-yard line. The red zone. Have
1: you heard of this before, harm <laughs> The red zone for crude. He goes on to say. Well, we'll we, talk, should, we should talk we should, to Michael Barr about we, this. We should try to comfort the markets altogether because it may be bad news for the consumers, importers today, but I believe it may be well be bad news for the producers tomorrow. He thinks that crude around 85 on Brent, 75 on WTI, is harming the economy already.
2: Do yeah. you see that, the global
1: economy harm?
2: Oh, the, for the global economy, it's, it is it is a bit harder. But I mean, overall, you have obviously, by definition, as, uh, as much glo- oil being exported as imported. So it's somebody's gain and somebody's pain. For the US, um, I think following uh, the 2015-16 decline in oil prices, Um, the views have shifted because when oil prices went down back then dramatically people thought it will be great right because it it increases purchasing power of households and it did but at the same time people have underestimated the structural change the US economy went through with shale gas and all that uh, because they took a huge hit so what you have for, for GDP growth as a whole in the US from oil price changes I think the impact may be close to negligible close to zero, but you have dramatic shifts within the sectors, i.e. when oil prices go up, it's good for producers, for investment, bad for households, and vice versa.
0: I mean, I look at the red zone, and first of all, <laughs> you got to have a, an end line. And I don't know where Fadi Barrel's end line is. I mean, first of all, the average price when we were above $100 a barrel wasn't $100. It was pushing 110 But the answer to me is we're a lot closer to that than Anyone imagine we would be Bank of America six, out seven um, months ago with a
1: note led by Ethan Harris um, saying that following Tom higher oil prices inevitable in our view hundred dollars a barrel easily within reach we should put an oil shock in the top three of our concerns over the next year what do you think about that harm when you hear stuff like that
2: from your peers well um, I mean we are we are paid to have views and sometimes to have more. Um, more out of out of the box views so so i'm um, it's it's not shocking particularly if you have seen uh, oil price moves or moves I- yeah. I- in the market in general so i mean we, we sometimes then we we, we extrapolate it I mean, we, we cannot totally dismiss it and and again the dynamic have been in that direction right. but also i would i mean i i think we have this one big additional producer which is u.s shell gas and and during the what they these producers use the crisis the drop in oil prices right. in 1516 to dramatically lower the break-even costs right so they okay. don't need the 80 <clears throat> bucks anymore they are good with i don't know 50 no. or something so i think they are an important marginal producer that that in our view prevents a, a sharper rise in oil
0: prices Herbato, thank you so much with unit credit uh, this morning John Farrow and Tom Keen in New York with your kitchen table interview of the day. John, did you have a kitchen table when you were a kid? Of course. Parents decided things at the kitchen table.
1: Italian father, it meant we all sat around the table for dinner and then every night thing, and argued. And things were decided, exactly. And then things were decided at the end.
0: Kathy Fisher of uh, Bernstein, head of their wealth and investment strategist, had kitchen tables too. Uh, as a, a kid, things get decided at a kitchen table. And right now in investment, it's we're behind so few people what percentage of people have actually captured the Lehman low bull market 10 percent
3: you know I, i don't know the answer to that question i would be guessing i would tell you this is i would argue this is where active management though comes into play because clients who work with an advisor, I think, got very good advice to, the courage to be move in the into equities and I agree. stay in equities. I do agree with that. And that's really where you get a lot of value. And we
0: forget that in the first few years, 09, 10, 11, even as bonds were doing double It was digit, very
3: hard. Time. It was very hard to have a right. full allocation of equities, but those who did right. clearly benefited yeah. substantially. Every, everyone
0: aged but you. Um, what I want to know, Kathy uh, Fisher, is you look at the kitchen table right now. The decision is, how do we catch up? I don't understand it. How does somebody catch up who's four and 500 basis points behind?
3: Well, the question is behind what, right? I mean, if you think about, if you had looked ahead, you know, let's just say five years ago, if you looked ahead to the market, you'd say, you know, we think stocks are gonna do sort of six, 7% in the decade to come, bonds far less. And if you looked at that projection as where you are today, you're kind of on track with that. So I think you've got to, you know, the whole point here is long-term. So I would say we're going through a jittery period now as we should be, as we have this transition to higher rates. As I've said before, we don't expect a terrible recession whenever it comes. We think there's an you know we'll have a sort of garden variety recession as opposed to something more dramatic than that. So trying to time these things is really not wise. And therefore, um, you know, staying with an equity allocation uh, and and some diversifiers and some bonds, I would still argue makes enormous sense because you, you know you want your bonds protection against stocks when the downturn comes, even though you're getting very little return uh, in the near term, but you know, there are pockets of opportunity in stocks around the globe, and it's silly to get out of them.
1: Do you think that bonds still have that risk mitigation characteristic that they used to have? Because right now, bonds and stocks are moving in lockstep.
3: Yeah. So clearly, everybody looks at the correlation of stocks and bonds, and we have seen a, you know, a higher, moving in the same direction, as you said, recently. But that's short term, right? You know, and as rates move up, it gives more room for rates to come down when stock jitters start to surface. Um, I mean, Municipal bonds, in particular, have you know held up better than taxable bonds in the past several quarters, as they always do, and therefore you know having bonds, as I always say, the cheapest and best against, defense against the volatility of stocks still makes sense.
0: Okay, but then I just looked at a large consumer discretionary, or you know maybe it's a staple that's just flatlined. There's a lot of stocks that are flatlined sure. over the last couple of years. Do you buy the flatline? or do you buy the revenue growth of the techs and the rest?
3: That's a really good point. Um, when you think of how much um, change there is, I don't want to use the word disruption because it's so overused, but it is true. There are many companies who have flatlined because investors are appropriately questioning whether they can figure out how to move forward. And how to move forward on revenue how growth. How to move forward on revenue growth. So I look totally at, uh, I mean, you mentioned staples. Think about mm. old line food companies. Yep. We all know that millennials are not buying packaged foods off the shelf in the grocery John, store.
0: You should the, I mean, it's worse than David. Girl, John, the amount of kale you have in your kitchen. I was in your kitchen the other day. It's just sick. He's got like you know, in the old days, you'd have like 12, 12 cases of Kathy. Jenny Cream Hell in your refrigerator.
1: There were You've beers in
3: there. It's There's all kale in the and quinoa. We got it right. There's a couple of peronies
1: yeah, in there. Even better, she fact, can pronounce you know quinoa. <laughs> there, used to be, there used to be more peronies in that fridge than there were after um mm. you came in. Oh, that's true. There that's you go, true. Kathy but Fisher. If I,
3: that I do, I just say, clearly, if you're in the packaged goods business or any of these others, it's a real problem.
0: Well, okay, you're in the packaged goods business, but the bottom line is, and this goes back to the Nobel Prize winners and Paul Romer with a great article 22 years ago, on scale. Everybody wants scale now, and is the real opportunity, this, this agglomeration we're going to have of low revenue growth companies in the next five years?
3: No, because remember, there's changing business models across the board, and I don't think we should assume just one thing at all. There's lots of change across many industries, and those who are figuring it out are indeed getting some advantage. You know, people will pay for perceived value, and we have Mm -hmm. to keep remembering that it's not always a race to the bottom. But rather, what do you what do you think you're getting for your dollar?
0: Timely, as we go to the end of the year, as uh, people look at double digit returns, I, I love I love saying that, John, because everything was such a single digit. The world's coming to an end certitude uh, in 09 and 10 as well. It's that kind of Uh, gloom
1: this morning, though, too, Tom, the IMF report, the IEA report. It's
0: It's in India and Indonesia, the new weakness as well. Kathy Fisher with Bernstein on what really matters, which is like, how are you doing around the kitchen table as well? with this Giannis Varoufakis, former finance minister of Greece. And I guess, Giannis, you could go back to October of 1940, sort of a prelude uh, to World War II, the Greco-Italian War, where, you know, everybody was upset in the, uh, the Balkans and the campaign uh, of early World War II. What can Italy in 2018 learn from Greece? What's the best and worst practice you lived that Italy needs to know now as they battle Germany?
4: Lesson number one is that Italy is simply not sustainable within the current set of rules of the Eurozone. And any attempt to try to just bend those rules without changing them as a result of uh, a structured process of negotiation involving other countries as well is going to fail. Uh, a succession of Italian governments, not just this one, the previous one by Matteo Renzi as well, was going to Berlin, going to Brussels, demanding their right to bend the rules. That is never going to work. But what Italy can do and must do uh, for the benefit not only of the Italian economy, but also of Europe as a whole, is for its, its prime minister to demand of Brussels, a European, the convening of a European Union Council meeting to discuss rules that make no sense and which are being violated, left, or right, and center anyway, because they don't make any sense. That, I think, is the, the number one priority of any sensible, rational government in Italy and, indeed, anywhere else in Europe.
5: Professor Varoufakis, will Greece ever recover
4: Oh, yes, we will recover. No doubt about that. We have had, you know, thousands of years of trials and tribulations. Uh, We're very good at squeezing uh, hope out of misery and overcoming crises. We've overcome 100 years of uh, the Ottoman occupation. We've overcome the Nazi occupation. We've overcome civil wars. We will overcome. But the tragedy is that this is an unnecessary crisis. This crisis presently is uh, causing the desertification of the country. We have something around ten to 15,000 young, well-educated uh, uh, men and women leaving the country, emigrating. And this is, as you can understand, this is the loss of crucial human capital for a small country like Greece. And uh, we're effectively going to lose two generations, and we're going to fall behind historically and it is completely unnecessary but to answer your question what needs to be done it's really very simple we have an insolvency which we keep looking at as an illiquidity problem unless we restructure our private and public debts
0: there is going yeah. to
4: be no solution and in the foreseeable future.
0: I want to interject here with Dr. Varoufakis that that is a core thesis of two lightweights in economics, Charles Plotz of Geneva and a guy named Guire, Paul Deguar at the London School of Economics. <laughs> Indeed. <Pim.
5: clears throat> well, just to continue on this theme, and I'm wondering if you can provide some maybe even anecdotal descriptions, is dealing with the European Union different in private than we see in public?
4: Absolutely, yes. You know, some people ask me, many people ask me, uh, how do I feel so certain that um, I was following the right path when I was uh, negotiating on behalf of on Greece? How did I dare even go against the powers that be, against Christine Lagarde, uh, the International Monetary Fund, Mario Draghi, the European Central Bank, the European Commission, the German... I'll, I'll tell you why. Because in our private discussions, behind closed doors, None of them, none of them ever looked at me in the eye and say that I was wrong. Not one. They all agreed with the basic tenet, the one I just presented to you a moment ago, that unless we restructure Greece's debt, there is no yeah. solution. Even the IMF agrees <clears throat> with that in public. But yeah. they would say this to me in private, and in public, there suddenly there was a complete alternative universe. I mean, yeah. the narrative was exactly the opposite.
0: Y- Yanis, I want you to speak of a, a, a moment where even America was frozen within Greek culture, which is the movie Z, the Costas Gravis movie of the late 60s, the movie Z, which, folks, uh, was a rare movie in that it was nominated Best Foreign Film and also Best Picture by the Academy Award. All that's great, and as a kid, I sat in the movie theater, Giannis, and watched it as a pampered American kid. You lived it and your parents lived it. Why isn't that anger there now in Greece? Why don't we have more of a Z attitude within the periphery of Europe? Well, the reason is
4: that we did have this spate of hunger. We had uh,
0: 90
4: nights, 90, nine zero nights in 2011, when we had something like between 100,000 and 120,000 people uh, occupying the main square of Athens every night for 90 consecutive nights. We've been through this. Uh, and in 2016, that movement led to our government being elected with a very clear mandate to just... To, 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 to do the rational thing, to, to go to our creditors and say, no more, we're not going to borrow more money from you, pretending that we are repaying you. And unfortunately, our own government um, went back on its word. And we this was the first first occasion I know of where uh, a government overthrew its people on the, <laughs> in the summer of 2015. So people are now licking their wounds uh, in their own homes, trying to make ends meet. The anger is there, and it is palpable, but you, don't, you won't see it in the form of but allow me to make one final comment, because uh, this is something that I feel very Please. proud and very moved by. You mentioned Costa Gavras's movie, Zed, which was crucial to people like me growing up in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, Costa Gavras is alive, well, and he is in the process of filming my latest book, Adults in the Room, which is uh, my account of what happened when I was well. in government.
0: That is wonderful to hear. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning. the former finance minister of his Greece and, of course, also uh, a professor. Right now, lost in translation, we consider the diplomacy, the dialogue, of america and china we do this with james trevitas uh, of tufts university of the fletcher school dean stevitas of course uh working a tour of duty a set of tours of duty for the navy as well admiral stevitas wonderful to speak to you again i was stunned by not the moment of harsh language between america and particularly china speaking to america in the last 48 hours but the set of harsh languages. Admiral, to the set of uh, harsh words that we had from China, is it unprecedented? Put it in perspective.
6: It is not unprecedented, and we've seen similar cratering of relationships across history, we've seen them with Russia. We've seen them with former allies at the end of the Second World War. Not unprecedented, but we are sailing into dangerous waters with China, Tom. It's not just trade. It's also the dispute over the South China Sea.
5: I'm wondering, uh, Admiral, if we could just shift your attention to another part of the geopolitical world, and that is Syria, Iran, Russia, and the Middle East. I know that you're probably aware that Moscow has uh, already announced that it will supply what are called S-300 air defense missiles to Syria, but the news is that they will be manned by Iranian soldiers that are trained by Russia. If true, what does this indicate to you, and what does the future hold for that region?
6: I think I see continuing conflict uh, between Iran, which is Shia, of course, and has aspirations of reconstituting a Persian empire, and Saudi Arabia, led by a dynamic young crown prince, Sunni, which is going to push back enormously. Parked in the middle of it, your point, Tim, is Russia. And Vladimir Putin is playing a weak hand of cards very well. He will continue to align with Iran with the remnants of Syria, and that will be a a flashpoint for the conflict going forward. Did that
0: dynamic young prince have his world changed in the last 72 hours with the murder of the reporter in Istanbul?
6: We will find out more, and if true, that is an unconscionable and an unbelievably reckless act. What's the history Um, of the
0: United States reacting in the tone and language of James Travitas?
6: It is not strong. However, within the last hour, we've seen Secretary Pompeo come out with some very strong words. We're seeing uh, Great Britain coming out with very strong words, demanding an investigation. Hey, Tom, you know you're in trouble when your advocate is Erdogan. It's Erdogan who was pushing uh, Mm. to find out what happened. Uh, I think we are going to see a thorough investigation the Saudis are going to have to answer for this.
5: Well, just to give the details ad Mr. Vitas, Turkish President Erdogan said that Saudi Arabia should prove that the missing Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi has, in fact, left the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. What? If, Sorry, go ahead.
6: Indeed, this is what staggers the imagination. Any intelligence service in the world, and if the Saudis Killed this journalist it would have been their intelligence service any one of them would know that to do it in a place like an embassy a consulate which is surrounded by 24 7 security would be unbelievably foolish as well as being unconscionable well, and reckless
0: to what we've talked about Admiral, in the last four minutes is the cacophony of the moment how do we find stability within these disparate stories we have to put
6: our faith in our values, Tom, and it's fashionable at the moment to see all of this as the insurmountable rise of a new kind of fascism, a, r- a return of 1930s-style authoritarianism. We need to push back on that collectively.
0: Okay, this is important because you're not aware of this, Armand, but we just were honored with the attendance of Yanis Varoufakis, who wrote a blistering article on fascism, which, frankly, his parents lived in the 60s uh, in the Guardian. Oh, eight weeks ago, or, or or so. Let us frame right now how you're teaching fascism at the Fletcher School. How immediate is it? Is it a neo-fascism? Is it a fascism light? Or is that not even the appropriate word?
6: I think it is the appropriate word. And here, the book I'd recommend, Tom, you and I often do book recommendations, Madeline Albright's new book, Fascism, A Warning. And that's how it's being taught at the Fletcher School. You have to look at the lessons of history in the 30s. and not allow that kind of rise of fascism which created the Second World War.
0: And I'd editorialize here, Pim, that both uh, Secretary Albright and Mr. Varoufakis had the advantage of growing up in the crucible of a 20th century Europe that was distant for Stavridis and me. I don't know about you, Pim. I mean, you grew up in the trauma of midtown Manhattan, so (laughs) that's probably a problem. Well, we won't go into that.
5: Uh, uh, (laughs) Admiral uh, Stavridis. uh, Speak, if you can, about the disposition of U.S. military forces at the the current time and whether they are really situated to deal with all of these variety of threats.
6: They are well positioned globally, Tim. What I worry (laughs) about is capacity. Uh, We can certainly handle one significant crisis, say a war on the Korean Peninsula or a war against Iran. Let's hope we have neither of those. Uh, But I am concerned about capacity in handling more than one. Right. gets us to the need for allies, partners, and friends.
0: Admiral, with great respect for your public service, and you've talked before about, you know, we're sort of the same age where you jumped into this when it was most unpopular uh, to join the Navy. Afghanistan. Nathan Chapman, you know, first person killed in Afghanistan. And it's been 17 years from Nathan Chapman. Just as a general statement across all the politics of this nation, what are we doing in a 17 year war? Is this like Germany in the 17th century? I would say it's
6: time to unwind what we're doing in Afghanistan. And it's worth noting, Tim, that when I was Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, I had 150,000 troops in Afghanistan. Today we're down to 15,000, 90 percent drop. But we're still pushing the Taliban. The key is Pakistan. That's why Secretary Pompeo is spending a lot of time uh, in thinking about how we get the Pakistanis to work with us. I think we're At a stage where we can negotiate an end to this thing with the Taliban, that's the way out.
0: With great respect for the public service of those in harm's way, what's the difference in our projection if we go from 15,000 to 14,000 Americans in Afghanistan?
6: The difference is every decrement is a significant reduction in resources and cost. And secondly... It is indicative, Tom, of turning the fight over to the Afghans themselves. Um, They're doing a reasonable job pushing back on the Taliban. Almost every insurgency ends in a negotiation. This one will, too.
0: Thank you. James Travitas with us today from Fletcher School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast